I thought we could do a very helpful Bible study tonight on a particular topic that's related to all those things. And to be honest with you, is a, um, is a topic that I would really say is kind of the foundational theological topic of anything that relates to sharing the gospel. So whether we're thinking about evangelism or we're thinking about church planning or we're thinking about foreign missions... Um, not in our own context. This is the, to me, at least, this is the foundational theological truth that we need to believe. First and foremost, we need to believe it. And and second, um, we need to be shaped by it. Meaning we need to be a people that as, as we think about doing any of these tasks, this ought to be at the forefront of our mind every single time. Um, There's things that can always fall to the wayside as you do all these different tasks whether it's evangelism and church planning and missions, but this one can't go to the side. This theological foundation and practical foundation can't just, we can't discard this one. So, um, and I want to kind of, I want to, I want to sort of explain this in terms, not just of in church planning and missions, as it relates to the great commission, as it relates to disciple making. I really want to talk about it tonight in terms of, the kingdom of God. Because when we think about all these endeavors, when we think about wanting to do all of them, and these are things that we pray about every single week when we come together on Wednesday, what are we doing in all three of those activities? Whether you're sharing the gospel, we can use that broadly in evangelism from your family to work to you know going out to Main Street, to tr- planning churches and to doing foreign missions. What are we doing in all three tasks that's exactly the same? What's happening in all three tasks? We are exalting God. We're exalting a particular person, right? We're exalting Christ. What are we saying, though, in the message in all three contexts? What are we, what are we bringing to people? What are we telling them has come? The kingdom, exactly. So in all, in every single one of those tasks, whether you sit down with your dad at the table, or you're going to go all the way off to Nepal or wherever it may be to go preach the gospel and to plant churches, that's what you're proclaiming in every context. You're proclaiming what Jesus and John the Baptist and everyone said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, therefore, and believe the gospel. That's what we're doing in all those contexts. So I think it's important for us to to talk about the kingdom of God, but specifically what I want us to talk about tonight is the kingdom of God in the spirit. So let's flip open to Acts. That's where we're going to be in tonight. And so this is where I want to begin. Because like that great truth in the, in the, in the Great Commission, if all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus and therefore we ought to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything Christ has commanded, uh, there's... There's more to it than just that, right? That, that, that particular commission and that task of go proclaim the kingdom of God is true. Um, but if you guys think about what happens immediately after Jesus gives the great commission, and as you see it then again kind of restated here in Acts before Jesus ascends, what you don't get is Jesus... Um, 
telling the disciples to simply go and do this sort of thing, go spread the kingdom of God across the face of the earth, because all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, he actually tells them to do a particular thing. So somebody read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Yes, 1, 1 through 8. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles who were not chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Amen. So a question then, what does Jesus say they need to wait for? in order to accomplish their task. The Holy Spirit, right? So that's not a hard question. It's right there in the text. But though it's not a hard question, it should stop. It it should make us stop and to think for like a minute. Okay, so you imagine um, how long had the disciples been with Jesus? I mean, and think about that for a moment. It's not like Jesus was revealing himself to them in dreams bit by bit, and they were just writing things down Jesus wanted them to do. Like God came down in the flesh and dwelt among them, and they got to walk around with the Son of God. For how long? Yeah, about three years, right? Three years. So you imagine this, you know, I have a, a, a paper back there that says I went to school uh, for a number of years, and I would trade that thing and all the money if I could walk with Jesus for three years. I'd trade all of it. Why? Because who's, who's the greatest teacher on planet Earth? Jesus, right? Now, now you think, I don't think my education was bad, but you would imagine that education is of much greater weight and importance and significance and just quality. I mean, you imagine the kind of quality you have with walking around with Jesus himself for three years. And Jesus isn't just walking around with him. What is Jesus constantly doing with them those three years? He's teaching them. I mean, they're his disciples. He's discipling them. And now he's not just, you know, he's obviously discipling them in different ways in life and in practice and in, you know, how you ought to forgive and all these sorts of things. But brethren, he's, he's like teaching them doctrine. And often when he's teaching them doctrine, they don't get it, right? He, he's constantly saying, can you, can you, can you go, uh, undergo the baptism of which I'm about to be baptized with? And he's using all this biblical language, and they, they just don't get it the whole time. But you imagine Jesus has taught them for three years. They've walked with him. They've done everything with him. They've seen him die on a cross, buried. They've seen him risen again from the dead. 
And then he spends another, as we just read, how long did he spend with them? 40 days, right? So whatever they were confused about for three years, Jesus rectifies in 40 days. And it says that he, he spent 40 days with them teaching them about what? The kingdom of God. So you imagine that kind of education. You just walked with Jesus for three years and you got a little 40-day seminar packed in before you sins. Would you consider yourself qualified and ready to go out and to spread the kingdom of God? Yes, right? The most natural response, and that would be my response too, right? <laughs> did, did I feel more prepared to jump in the ministry with a couple years of, of schooling? Well, yeah, of course I did. I learned a few things, hopefully. <laughs> but you imagine you spend all that time with Jesus. The first thing you're thinking of is, Jesus, give us the marching orders. Okay, disciples of all the nations, go. We're going to make disciples. Let's go. But that's not what he tells them to do. I mean, isn't that kind of a weird thing? You get three years and 40 days with Jesus, and then he tells them, wait. I'm going to leave. Wait. And I think that, I mean, before we even get into this, I think that's just a, that's just something that, brethren, don't we often just, whether it's Fridays or maybe it's even just, we're, gonna, we're, we're planning on talking to someone we really care about, a coworker, someone in the family. We have not waited upon the Lord to ask Him, Lord, give us help, give us power in this, give us your spirit in this to go out and to do this kind of thing. I mean, we know the command. I think everyone wants to be obedient, which is good. We want a heart that responds quickly to the command. Jesus says, go, you go. Jesus says, talk to that person, you talk to that person. That's a good heart to have. But brethren, we need to remember this, that we're not above the, we're not above the apostles here. And so we need to realize, okay, He says, you wait... And they had to wait. And here's, the, and here's the key. He didn't just wait to test them. Maybe. There's, there's kind of a testing thing going on in there. But they're supposed to wait for a particular thing. And the particular thing, as you guys know, is the Spirit. Now, the question behind that is going to be why. Why did the disciples need to wait for the promised Spirit? There's a couple answers to this. It's kind of a trick question. But at the most basic fundamental level, why did they need the Spirit to go out and do that task? What does he tell them in verse 8? You will receive what? Power, right? You're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit to be able to go do this thing. So fundamentally, we need this for power, which is an application point. But I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that particular point. I want to really dig into the theological tonight for Bible study, but that's absolutely important. The disciples needed power to go out and to accomplish this great task. I mean, don't we need this? Don't we need power if we're going to see Vegas transformed, if we're going to see the world transformed? Brother, we need power. But more than this, and this is what I want to show you guys tonight and, and, and dive into this really rich theology of this, is that not only did they need power, but I, I would argue, and I'm going to demonstrate in this study, there would be no kingdom to proclaim if there was no spirit given. So if the spirit of God is not given as Jesus promises, then there's no kingdom of God for them to go out and to proclaim. Does that make sense? 
So Jesus has promised them the, the, the power and the, and the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit actually to come upon them and empower them for the work so that they can go proclaim the kingdom of God that Jesus has just taught them for the last 40 days. In this kingdom that he's going to have them proclaim, I'm going to argue, there's not going to be any kingdom to preach if there's no spirit that's being poured out. If the Holy Spirit doesn't come, then the kingdom has not come. Jesus, whatever Jesus was saying was not true, right? And we, and we know this to be somewhat true because in Jesus' own ministry, what was he saying he was doing by the finger of God? What was he saying he was doing by the power of the Spirit? Casting out demons. He tells the Pharisees, I'm casting out demons by the finger of God. Therefore, the kingdom of, no, there, this for certain, the kingdom of God has come upon you. All right, so Jesus says, I do work by the Spirit, and therefore you know the Spirit has come in power upon me. You know that the kingdom's here. Those two things are intimately tied together. So I want us to see that tonight. That as we, <clears throat> as we look through this section, and as we'll kind of look through the Old Testament too, that I want us to, uh, I really want us to be convinced of this in a few ways. One, the theological truth that God's kingdom has come. And the way that we know the kingdom has come is because the Spirit has been poured out upon the church and the church has been given power to accomplish the work of spreading the kingdom over the face of the earth. Want us to be convinced of that theological truth because, I mean, the, the, the question then is going to come, if you're convinced of that truth, well, what kind of people will we be, right? If we really believe that's actually happened, we're going to go tell people, hey, a kingdom has come. The Spirit's been poured out for us to proclaim this thing, and the kingdom's come upon you. There's a response that's required of you now. The kingdom's here. You have to respond. It's not an option. You've got to repent because the king's here. If, if we actually believe that theological truth, brethren, it's going to make us a completely different people. And not only is it going to make us a different people practically, like we do every Wednesday and like we should be doing every single day. We're going to be a people praying like the disciples were asking for God to pour out his spirit among us. But two, that's going to change your whole view of history. What is going on right now? You know, what is God doing in the world right now? And I'm a part of this thing. And what am I doing to be a part of history right now? I mean, brethren, it changes. Literally, it does. It changes everything to use a you know, a cliche that gets thrown around all the time, but it's true. It literally changes everything. It changes how you think about everything. So let's look at these sections right here. So <clears throat> we're going to spend a decent amount of time here in Acts 1 and Acts 2, and then through some Old Testament passages. So here's how we're going to break this up. We're going to spend our first section here in 1 through 8. And then I want us to go back to some Old Testament passages so we can understand what Jesus is actually saying and what he's actually doing in Acts 1 so that we can understand, okay, Luke has written this, you know, Acts of the Apostles a very specific way. He's actually structured it for us. So here in Acts chapter 1, we read, that he spends 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God. Well, flip to the end of Acts. Acts 28. And someone just read that last verse right there. Now for some context, this is Paul. 
But what, what's it say there in the last verse of Acts 28? And someone can read it if they have it. Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without, without hindrance. Right, right, right. And you know where we get that the disciples were teaching about the kingdom of God with more and more boldness back earlier in Acts? Acts 4. And what had just happened in Acts 4? They had prayed. They had prayed in light of the kingdom, the Messiah, and what falls upon them. The Spirit of God fills, shakes the building, and it says that they proclaimed Christ with more and more boldness. So my whole point in that is just to say this entire book is structured around this idea about the kingdom of God. But I want us to see that as we, after we look at this, these first few verses in chapter 1, that this was, this was the plan from the beginning. This was actually the hope of the ages, that this thing would happen, that the Spirit was going to be poured out. And then when we finish, we'll look at Acts 2, and Acts 2 will be a great example for us of how the disciples, the apostles themselves, interpret the coming of the Spirit and what it brings about in history, and two, what it's going to accomplish in history, and then three for us, practical application of what it means for us, what, what does it make us as a people, what, what it ought to make us as a people. So let's, yeah, yeah, no, go, this is open forum. This ain't, this ain't no, this ain't no sermon. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a good question. I would say it's a number of different things, right? So that would be tied to it. Be given power would be given boldness because we see that in Acts chapter 4. The Spirit falls upon them and it says that they, that, that they, that they grew, that, that they, that they grew in boldness and, 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 and in proclaiming the name. So yes, one would be boldness, doing it without hindrance. But two would be that the message proclaimed gets, gets proclaimed powerfully and has a powerful effect. And we're going to see that in two. <laughs> we'll see it in two, but it's a bunch of different things. But yes, what you, what you just commented on would, would no doubt be uh, considered part of the power. Yeah, proclaiming it boldly, yes. Which is something we ought to pray for when we go out. So let's look at these first eight verses right here. Uh, I'm going to divide this up in, in these first couple verses because we have a section right here. So... Let's look at this for um, these first couple verses. So Acts 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit. So let's stop right here. So this is very interesting what Jesus is doing right here, right? Jesus himself is giving these commands through the Holy Spirit. So this is an important connecting thought right here and, and and this is pretty much what you get here right at the beginning of Acts and verses 1 and 2 is a summation right this is a summation of what this is why Luke wrote what he wrote he's writing to Theophilus and he says he wants to deal with all that Jesus began to do and to teach which would be in Luke and then here in Acts after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the of the apostles whom he had chosen so here's what he's doing he's given commands or teaching he's given teaching in the power of the Spirit, to these apostles. And here's what he's teaching in verse 3. So in verse 3, He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, 
appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, this is a, an extremely important phrase right here, right? Most of the time you'd read through these first five verses and not give it any attention. This is massively important because Luke is telling you why he just wrote the entire book of Acts. Jesus has taught his apostles for 40 days about what? I'm going to be repetitive here on purpose, the kingdom of God. Okay, I want you to hold that over here in your mind like you have one hand on it. The kingdom of God. It's right over here. I want you to hold on to it like you're holding it in your hand, okay? He's teaching on the kingdom of God. Now, this isn't going to come across in the, in the English Bible, but verse 4 is a connecting verse. This is a connecting verse right here. This is not into addition of what Jesus was talking about. Rather, this is an expansion, right? Um, so you can get this kind of thing in all sorts of different ways. When we often read Psalms, Manny will note this times, Nick will note this at times, I'll note this at times. In the Psalms, you'll get, you'll get staggering lines, and you'll get one that says, uh, Lord, your love is forever. Um, your steadfast um, you know, faithfulness endures forever. And so what you'll do is you'll get these two mutually um, connected lines where they say something a little bit different, but they're talking about the same idea. And you have this kind of thing going on right here. This verse 4 is a connecting thought. So what he's talked about in verse 3, which is Jesus spoke for 40 days about the kingdom, right? This is a connecting thought. This is, we're, on the, we're on a similar thing. So verse 4, and while staying with them, right? And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said. So now he's going to tell you what this promise of the Father is. You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So what is Luke, what two ideas is Luke connecting for you in these first uh, five verses? What's the first one we're holding on to? What's he connecting? The kingdom of God, and what else? The Spirit, right? Remember back at verse 4, look at there again. He just got talking about 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God, and while staying with them, this is a connecting thought. So when he was teaching them about the kingdom, and he was teaching them about the Spirit, he was teaching them about one idea, not two. So this, this idea has two different sides, but it's like two sides of a coin. This is one idea right here. So he appears to them for 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he, he, it, it's almost like he, he's, he's drawing out even further this teaching on the kingdom of God and tells them the, this promise of the Father is that you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So there's our first one, right? Now, that could be enough, in my opinion, that could be enough to tie those two ideas together. But he does it again in these next six verses, or <laughs> excuse me, next three verses in six through eight. So let's, let's look back at six through eight. So we already have those two ideas connected together, kingdom and spirit, right? Kingdom and spirit. So why don't you guys pretend they're just like two hands on the same rope right here. So six, let's look at six. So when they had come together, they asked, right? And, and this, so 
Listen, this should be a natural question the disciples are asking because Jesus just spent 40 days teaching them. And he said that this is what they asked Jesus. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And here's what he says to them. Now notice, verse 6, this is in response to Jesus' teaching, right? This is in response to it. Notice the first thing that they ask about. Well, when are you going to restore the kingdom? Like, is that a dumb question? No. he just been 40 days talking about this. They want to know, okay, great. When's it coming? When's the kingdom coming? When are you going to restore this kingdom? Right? So just like he did in verses 3 to 5, he's going to make the same connection again. What's our first connecting point? The kingdom. When's it coming? Now here in 7, this is what Jesus responds to them. But notice how Jesus responds to him. Now, many people look at this and they think, oh, Jesus is not answering their question. He's just, he's kind of sideswiping them and he's giving them an answer to something else. He's not going to really deal with their question about when the kingdom's going to arrive. And I don't think that's true. Why? Because in three to five, what did he just connect? Kingdom and the spirit. So I think when Jesus answers here in seven, he's answering their question. He's just not answering it the way that they expect, expect him to answer it. So here's what he says. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, pause right there. So if you think about, you know, similar language like this. Now, it's, it's not exactly the same, so don't quote me on this. But in Matthew 24, Jesus just goes through the Olivet Discourse and he's telling them, you know, when are all these things going to come about? This judgment of Jerusalem, when is all this stuff going to happen? And you know what he does? He spends 35 verses giving them all these things that are going to occur. And then they're going to know this is when it happens right here. But you know what he says in 36 to them? He says, but concerning that day and hour, nobody knows, right? So Jesus, it's like he tells them then, hey, listen, a lot of things are going to happen. You're going to know the sign that this destruction of Jerusalem is going to come about. But the exact day and time, that's not for me to tell you. And I think you get that kind of similar idea going on in here. The disciples are like, so when's the kingdom coming about? And Jesus is like, hey, listen, it's not for you to know the exact time and the exact place where this thing is going to come about. But he does give them an answer, right? He says, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. That sounds very much like um, Matthew chapter 24. But you will receive power when what? The Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So how does Jesus answer their question? What does, he, what does, he, what does Jesus tell them? How are they going to know that the kingdom's been given back to Israel? Or we could just, let's rough translate that, the people of God, so not to confuse anybody. How do we know that God has given the kingdom back to his people? That's right. <laughs> is it like I said, it's as easy. The Spirit. All right. So now you have twice within the span of eight verses, Luke has connected both ideas together twice, back to back, in order to, I think, demonstrate to you what his whole book's going to be about. The kingdom of God is being proclaimed and it's coming about. And here's how you know the kingdom of God has come about and it can be proclaimed in power because the Spirit of God has been poured out. So that the disciples' question could be answered, 
Lord, will you restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? And it's like he's telling them, just wait upon the Spirit. Quit waiting upon the exact day and time. Wait upon the Spirit. It's kind of like a rough answer here. So does, everyone, does that make sense for everybody, these two ideas? Uh, it, 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 and this is, like I said, this is repeat throughout the book of Acts, and this is repeat throughout the New Testament. This idea of the kingdom of God, you know that it's here, that it's arrived, because the Spirit of God himself has been given by Christ. And so he connects those two things. Teaches them for 40 days about the kingdom, and in doing so, he explains the promise of the Father, the Spirit. The disciples ask, when the kingdom coming? When is the kingdom coming? And, then, and, and, and he responds, wait upon the Spirit. <laughs> it's like he's building you up for this thing. And so, you know, you can kind of do this to yourself. Well, I wonder what's going to happen in Acts chapter 2, you know. It's kind of a bummer when you read the Bible so many times and you begin to study it because you kind of lose the, you kind of lose the effect of the story. You know, it's like, imagine you didn't have Acts 2. You're like, dude, what's going to happen next? Well, you kind of know, but you can think to yourself, I wonder what's going to happen in Acts chapter 2. But before we get there, I want us to go back to the Old Testament because I don't even just want to convince you in those first couple verses here in Acts. I want you to see that this idea of the kingdom of God that was proclaimed back in the Old Testament through the prophets was something that was also proclaimed alongside of the promise of the Spirit. And and this is something that um, I know Manny has greatly enjoyed in his own study and Nick as well. This idea of the Spirit being poured out is so central to the biblical message and understanding what's going on and in, 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 in how God's working out everything in history. And it's important for us to see this because Luke is not just going kingdom spirit and he's just making it up as he's going along. He is pulling upon the Old Testament theology to say, hey, this thing that's been, that we've been waiting for this whole time, this thing has been coming about because the Messiah actually came and the Spirit's really going to be poured out. So before we jump into Acts 2 and we kind of see the, uh, we see the outworking of those first couple verses there in Acts 1, let's look at some Old Testament text here where we get this idea of the kingdom and the Spirit um, being connected. So you guys are going to have to read. I'm not reading all this. Isaiah 32, 14 through 18. Let's turn to that first one. Someone read that one. Yeah, Isaiah 32, 14 through 18. Okay, no, yeah, that's perfect. 
So what's, I mean, what's going on here, right? And, and I mean, and to kind of get you, this is almost at the, the center of Isaiah. So Isaiah right here, right in these, these, these few couple of chapters, you're getting the heart of Isaiah's message, which is this. The people are going off into exile, and he describes it like this. The palace is forsaken, the populous city is deserted, the hill and the watchtower have become dens forever. If you become a den, it means you become a den for wild animals. This is not a good thing. A joy of wild donkeys and a pasture of flocks. You become like this barren, wasted wilderness where wild animals and beasts dwell. Not a good thing in the Bible. And this is speaking about the people. This is speaking about God's city, which is really speaking about God's habitation, where God dwells, where God is. But, right, and so, and, and think about it like this. What do we call the place where God dwells and the place where God reigns from? What's another way we would say that? If I, that's the place of, you know, what, what do we call, uh, what, you know, okay, Lord of the Rings for a second, right? Um, Theoden the king, his realm in Rohan is called the what of Rohan? It's the, the kingdom. Man, my man, yes, let's go. It's the kingdom of Rohan, right? Right? Because it's the place where he dwells and he reigns and he has authority over that place. So this is very similar. The palace is forsaken. The kingdom's in ruin. If the palace, you know, right? If the throne is dusty and broken and has cobwebs on it and stones all around it, then the rest of the kingdom is decimated, right? It's the central sign that the kingdom's gone. But in 15, this is going to be the effect until what happens? Yeah, until the Spirit's poured out. And then notice what it says. The wilderness becomes fruitful again. It becomes deemed a forest. Justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness and abide in the fruitful field. Well, how does justice and righteousness dwell in these fruitful places in, the, in these fields? Well, justice and righteousness don't have feet. <laughs> He's personifying them because why? The king's there. That's how you know justice and righteousness is back in a place. The king's walking around. He's issuing for justice and righteousness. Okay, so we have that. There's the first connection. So we're going to be in Isaiah this whole time. Isaiah 43, 10 through 11. Isaiah 43, 10 through 11. And I want you to think too, as you read some of these verses, I want you to think of those verses we just read in Acts. And I want you to think of similar phrases here, right? Isaiah 43, 10 through 11. You are my witnesses. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely want you to read that. Yeah, read it. <laughs> you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, and you, that you may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Right, okay. Now, why did I just quote that one? Because we don't have the spirit and the kingdom connection there. But what's the first phrase in Isaiah 43.10? You are my witnesses. Where did we hear that from? What did we read right at the beginning in Acts? Jesus tells them, he said, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to us? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons as the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will be my witnesses. Okay, so we get this idea being played up. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 43 are here very loosely, and he's quoting it. And you know what he's telling them? Boys, get ready. This is you, right? 
He says, you're going to be my witnesses, my servant whom I have chosen. Well, in Isaiah 53, who's the suffering servant? Well, it's Jesus. But here, by extension, it becomes the servants of the servant. Okay, so let's read Isaiah 44, 3 to 4. Just one chapter over. Isaiah 44, 3 to 4. Yeah, Isaiah chapter 44, verses 3 through 4. Yep, that's it. All right, so here once again, here once again, we have this imagery, right? And, 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 and here is where you got to, this is where the idea connects together and you have to cut out your chapter divisions. Um, Isaiah 43 and 44 is one thought. And you notice that later on in Isaiah 44, he says once again, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last besides me. There is no God. Well, we just heard that in 43 after he calls out his witnesses. And so now here you have this connection between them, right? You have these witnesses, the servant whom God has chosen in 43. And in 44, he says, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land. Right? What's he going to begin to do through his servant? He's going to begin to pour water out upon the ground. And once again, you have this Hebrew parallelism going on where one line interprets the next line because both thoughts are stating the same fact. He will pour out water on the thirsty land and on the streams of the dry ground, verse 3. And, my, and, uh, and, and here's how he follows it up with, a, with another line. I will pour my what? Spirit. So water and spirit, these two things are connected together. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. And then these people are going to begin shooting up like grass. Okay, so you got these two ideas connected once again together. You got this servant who's going to bring this thing about. And what it's going to bring about is it's going to bring about righteousness and people shooting up once again for God. And it's going to be through the spirit that's getting promised. Okay, so now let's read verses 6 through 8 of that same chapter. Someone have 6 through 8 just right after that. Can I make one side comment? Yeah, Sorry. make the side so, good for us too. No, that's good. So who has six through eight? 44, six through eight.
and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old, from of old, and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not him. Okay. So here you got this 43 and 44 now just get locked in together with these phrases. Where did we, what phrase did we just get here again in verse 8? You are my witnesses, right? So here's what Isaiah is envisioning. He's going to appoint a new servant. This servant is going to be a witness for God. As they make proclamation, what's going to happen through their proclamation? The wilderness is going to turn back into what? a fruitful field, a forest. People are going to begin shooting up like grass. Why? Because when they make proclamation, what's going to be poured out upon the ground? The Spirit. Water's going to be poured out, a.k.a. the Spirit. The Spirit's going to get poured out. So let's look at another one, Isaiah 49, 5 through 6. All right, so here you got this same thing, but now you get, I think, an absolute, the language just keeps getting bolder here. So this thing that's going to get proclaimed, where not only, as we saw before, this servant is going to speak and make proclamation, the Spirit's going to be poured out, and he says, your children are going to shoot up like grass from the ground. Your descendants are going to be blessed. They're going to, the kingdom's going to come about. Now he says, what does he say in, in six? He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up just who? Yeah, Israel. To raise up the tribes of Judah and to bring back the preserved of Israel. What does he say? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So Isaiah is just, now he's just like capstoning this thing with this idea of, okay, these two ideas are going to come together. The servant, these witnesses, proclamation, the spirit of God, and there's going to be a result that comes about from this thing. But once again, these two things are intimately tied together. You don't have one without the other. So, Let's look now at the timing of these things. Well, somebody, let's go back here in Isaiah to Isaiah chapter 2. Have somebody read Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. Isaiah 2, 2 to 3.
let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his way, and that we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Right. So there's a lot in there to talk about, too. So here you got a couple of things going on as well. Now, as we've kind of already talked about with Isaiah, this whole thing is connected. This idea again of the kingdom and the spirit, right? We've saw it, we saw it in all those verses that we just quoted right here. But now I want us to set us up for something that's going to happen in Acts chapter 2 with asking a few questions about when does Isaiah see this great reality going to take place? Well, what does he say there in the beginning of verse 2? It shall come to pass when? Okay, in the latter days. Now, so there's our time frame reference. In the latter days, this thing is going to come about. The Spirit of God is going to be poured out like water upon the thirsty dry ground. And people, not just even Israel, but the nations are going to spring up. And the world once again is going to be covered like a fruitful garden or like a forest with many trees. So you got your time frame reference right here. But then notice a couple of the other factors that we've talked about already in here as well. He says, the result of this is that God's kingdom or mountain is how he describes it here, is going to be lifted up above every single kingdom or mountain. And what's going to happen? Nations are going to flow up to this thing. And they're going to say some things right here. But notice what here they say here at the end. Out of Zion shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from where? Jerusalem, right? So kind of setting us up. Okay, we, we, we understand where this thing is going to happen, where it's going to begin, when it's going to happen. It shall come to pass when? In the latter days. So let's read one more reference here for us so that we can really set ourselves up for success. We're going to turn to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. So this is going to be after Isaiah. It's going to be Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Joel 2. I'm going to read 28 to 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit in all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. All right, so Joel right here is envisioning what? There's going to come a day where God does what? I'm being very repetitive here again. Right, he's going to pour out. I just want, I want us to really see that, right? It's repetitive for a reason. There's coming a day that Joel sees God's going to pour out his spirit. There's going to be a dramatic effect that's going to happen when God pours out his spirit. So let's turn to Acts 2 now. Because now as we read Acts 2 and we get into this third section, we're going to see all these things come together. We're going to see this idea of Acts chapter 1 of the kingdom and the spirit come together. And we're going to see how the Old Testament pictured and prophesied this reality to be brought about. And in Acts 2, all the questions are going to be answered for us. When's this going to happen? Like the disciples' questions. Well, when the spirit gets poured out and what begins to happen when the spirit's poured out? Proclamation and people begin to be saved. 
That's how we know the kingdoms come, because the spirits come, because these realities are brought to bear. So let's look at Acts chapter 2. I'm actually going to read through this. I'd normally have you guys read it, but I'm going to read through it so I can really kind of hit point out and hint out some things. So here's Acts chapter 2. Let's listen to this. Acts 14, beginning there. But Peter... Now, let me give a little... You, you guys hopefully know the background to this. Why does Peter have to stand up and begin to declare some things among all these people? Well, because the Spirit was just poured out. And how, what was the sign that the Spirit of God was just poured out? What were the people speaking in, in Acts 1? Tongues, right? And these people are like, oh, these people are drunk. And he goes, no, 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 brothers. These people aren't drunk, as you suppose. He's going to explain what's going on. He's going to tell you what's happening, right? And this would be important, right? Because this great thing happens. You hear the sound of rushing water, right? We get that connection with water. And a tongue of fire comes down upon them. And, and they begin to speak in tongues. And now Peter's going to tell us what on earth is going on here in Acts chapter 2. And don't forget... What just came before Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 1, right? And they had just asked that question, when's the kingdom going to come? When are you going to give it back to us? And he says, wait upon the Spirit. So when you get to Acts chapter 2, you're expecting that, th that this anticipation is going to be pressed and we're going to get some kind of resolution, right? There's some tension built up. So Acts 2, 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of, Judea, or men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So here, it, don't get confused by everything that's going on right now. Peter is giving an explanation of what is happening. What's going on? Peter's like, here's what's going on, guys. And he quotes a Bible verse to tell you what's going on. He quotes a Bible verse, verse 17. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vaporous smoke. Sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So there's a, there's a number of things going on right here. But let me ask you this. What rings a bell right here as he makes this quotation of a Bible verse? Where is he quoting from that we had just previously read? Yeah, Joel. Wait, yeah, the one the, the one we just got done reading. Here he just he I mean he almost quotes Joel verbatim here. He even goes further than we did. He reads a little bit more. He even adds on the ending of Joel. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's back in Joel chapter 2. But notice right here at 17, right at the beginning, in what? In the what? Last days. Well, where did we hear that phrase from? Remember I told you to hang on to that phrase. 
Yeah, in the latter days or in the last days, right? We read that in which book? Isaiah, right? But Peter says what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Joel doesn't say in the last days. We just read it. He says, right? <laughs> yeah, check me. He doesn't say it. It's not there, right? So he says, this is what Joel said. And then he, he pulls one line out of Isaiah, and then he quotes the rest of Joel. Why does he do that? Is, is Peter getting funky here with the Bible? Is Peter trying to make up his own version? Is he trying to just make things appear out of thin air? And the answer, obviously, to that, brethren, is no. Peter is not being fast and loose with the text here. But you know what Peter is doing? Peter can say, this is what Joel said, because Isaiah and Joel are talking about the same thing. So if in Isaiah, Isaiah 2 says, In the last days it shall be that the, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be made the highest mountain, and all the people are going to flow up to it. All the nations are going to stream up to it. And Joel says, well, in, in those days, the Spirit's going to be poured out. Peter has no problem with going, yeah, Joel said that. Joel said that in the last days, this is what's going to happen, even though Joel didn't utter the words in the last days. Why? Because Joel and Isaiah are talking about the same thing, which once again shows you Peter understands. Peter now, finally being a good disciple of Jesus, right, has finally connected the dots together. He goes, whoa, the spirit was poured out. Well, what else has just come? The kingdom. How do we know that Peter thinks the kingdom has come? Because he says, in the last days, and he quotes Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2 is all about the establishment of God's kingdom. So you see Peter's thinking. Peter goes, man, the spirit was just poured out and everyone just spoke in tongues. I understand what's going on right now. Our question just got answered. When's the kingdom going to come? He says, man, wait upon the spirit. Quit asking questions. And the spirit comes about. And now they're like, whoa, what just happened then? What just came about? Well, the kingdom just arrived. And he combines both of them together and he tells you what? When's the last days? Is this something in the future? It's not. When was the last days? It was the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God was poured out. How do we know that, brethren? Because the Spirit was poured out. The, the Spirit of God gets poured out. They begin speaking in tongues and Peter goes... This is what's going on. This is fulfilling what Joel talked about and what Isaiah talked about and what the whole Old Testament has talked about and what Jesus just taught us back in Acts chapter 1. The kingdom's here. The last days are rolling in because God's kingdom has been established and the Spirit of God has now just been poured out. Both of those ideas, the kingdom and the Spirit, both now meet together. And you get this later on too. He doesn't have to say Spirit again in order to make this point down in 29. So let's turn now, this is Acts chapter 2, just move down to 29. I'm going to read this section here too. So Peter now, so Peter tells them, here's what's happening. The Spirit's been poured out. This is in fulfillment of what Joel says. And then he says, this was also in fulfillment of what the prophet David said, speaking about Christ. And then in 29, he's addressing them, brothers. And he's telling them, here's the conclusion to all of this. He says, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him 
that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and that we are all witnesses. And this is very important right here in 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having, in, once again, connecting Acts chapter 1, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 34, the conclusion. 4, how should they therefore know God has exalted Christ to the right hand and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, how should they know this? For David did not ascend into heaven, right? David still was still in the grave. David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said, he quotes another Bible verse, Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 36, the declaration, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. So these are the two thoughts. He tells them, here's what you're hearing. The Spirit's been poured out. The last days have come upon us. And we know this because the Spirit's been poured out among you guys. And the connection with this is, listen, Christ ascended. He didn't just rise from the dead. He ascended and is now exalted to the right hand of the Father, which means what? He's sitting down on his what? Sitting down on his throne. Guess what's back in action now? The king. The king's there. And just like in Isaiah 32, right? The palace is no longer desolate. The throne is no longer empty. The king is sitting there now. So what ought to be poured out on the thirsty ground now that the king's back? The spirit, the water, the water's going to get poured out. The spirit's getting poured out, which he says right there in 33, he's been exalted to the right hand, having received from the promise of the father, the Holy Spirit, he has poured out. That's an allusion right there to Isaiah 32. He has poured out the spirit that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. I mean, brethren, so listen, this connection is just absolutely, I mean, if you weren't convinced of it right at the beginning, you should be convinced of it now. And then here is the conclusion to all this in 41. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about what? 3,000 souls. This is like what he tells them in Isaiah 32. Your children and your descendants are going to shoot up from the ground like grass. It's going to be fruitful again. And then what happens throughout the book of Acts? Does the book of Acts end in Jerusalem? No. Where does it end? Where's Paul at the end of Acts? Rome. Yeah. <laughs> He's all the way out to the ends of the earth, brethren, out to the Gentile nations proclaiming what? At the end of 28, proclaiming the kingdom of God. That's what he's doing. And so Acts is this big, long story to tell you what Jesus taught us at the beginning of Acts and what the whole Old Testament was anticipating has now come into reality. The last days has come. The Spirit's been poured out. The kingdom of God can now be proclaimed. And people are shooting up from the ground like grass coming from the wilderness because the Spirit's been poured out. So... I hope you see that now. <laughs> I hope you see what got laid out there right at the beginning there in Acts of the kingdom and the spirit 
and the fact that these two things are so intimately tied together that you can't separate them. And so one of my questions to you would be this, are we waiting upon the kingdom of God to come? Are we waiting for the kingdom to come? No, we're not. How do we know that? How can you say with such confidence the kingdom of God has come? That's right. The Spirit of God's been poured out. What does Paul say about all of us? We've all been baptized, what, into one body by one spirit? We all have the Spirit of God that has been poured out upon us. The Spirit of God's been poured out upon the church of Pentecost. We know for absolute certain that the Spirit's been poured out. The King has been exalted already. We're not waiting for a kingdom in the future. Guess what age we live in right now? Yeah, exactly. Where are we on this? Are we awaiting for a future kingdom? Or what age? What, what time of history do we live in right now? Are we living in a time where we wait for the kingdom to come? No. We live in what time of history? Yeah, we live in the time of the kingdom. We live in the age of the Messiah. We live in the age of, you can almost call it the age of the Spirit. That sounds kind of new agey, but it's true. We live in the age of the Great Spirit, the Holy Spirit, right? The true Spirit. We, that's the age we live in right now. And I think, one, this is, an I mean, this is such an important theological concept for us as a church, one, uh, because it's the Bible. This is what, I mean, brethren, did the Bible just say that or did I just say that? The Bible. None, nothing I just presented is me. That was, it's not fancy. I didn't make this up. I didn't come up with this. Other people have seen these realities long before I have. So let's just take it for what it says. The kingdom has come. We're not waiting for it. We live in the great age of the kingdom. We live in that great age of the Messiah, the great age of the Spirit. So what should we expect now in this great age, in this great kingdom? What's going to happen? Yeah, what did you say? Right, the Holy Spirit's being poured out in this great age. That's what's being happened. So what's going to be the result of God pouring out His Spirit over the last 2,000 years? People are going to return, like in Isaiah 2. The nations are going to go, let's go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord. Right? Is that happening? It is. Right? I mean, you think the, the good news had not gone much further than Israel. It had gone out to a few nations, but not many. Rather than the gospel now reaches literally all over the place. Nepal, Lebanon, Myanmar, China, Indonesia, America of all places, England, all these different places. I mean, brethren, that, that's the result. And, and you need to think about this. That may not give you a lot to go do, but does, does that not shape your mind differently now? Does it not shape how you think? Does it not shape how you think theologically? If someone asks you now, hey, can't wait till the kingdom arrives, and you're like, brother, the kingdom's here, <laughs> right? And you could tell them the spirit of God's been poured out, the kingdom's arrived, it's here. And guess what the result of that kingdom is going to be? People are going to spring up across the whole world. It's like what he says right there in Isaiah 49. This thing is, it's, it's, a, it's too light a thing for God just to save a bunch of Israelites. He says he's going to make us a light to the nations. Why? So that the nations would be brought in. That's going to be the result. So now another question for you, and this is another paradigm shift for you, is what, how do you guys think about history now? I mean, what's happening in history? If I said, what's been happening for the last 2,000 years since Christ ascended? I mean, now you have an answer, right? You could tell somebody what's been happening the last 2,000 years. 
The kingdom's been spreading. The word of God's been going forth. The spirit's been pouring out. What are we waiting for ultimately? The kingdom to be what? Yeah, the kingdom would be consummated, fully finished, right? We read that in 1 Corinthians 15, right? He's going to hand over the kingdom to the Father. God's going to be all in all. That's, that's what our great hope is now. But, I mean, brethren, this does not only change how you think theologically. I mean, you don't need to be, uh, you know, you don't need to be a history buff to know where history is going. You don't need to be a history buff to know what, did, what was all of history? What was it? What, why is it all there? Why is it all happening? Why did it all happen? Why is history even continued? Right? Why has history even gone on for the last 2,000 years since Jesus ascended? It's not arbitrary. God wasn't just like, let's just let the clock run another 2,000 years. Why not? God has a purpose in it. He's going to establish his king. He's going to pour out his spirit. What was once a wilderness of a world is now going to be turned into a fruitful garden. God's kingdom is going to spread across this whole face of the earth, and he's going to accomplish what he's going to accomplish. And we can know this for a fact because the spirit's been poured out. It's like God hit a button or pulled a lever and there's like no turning back. You know what I mean? It's like it's it's like if you got, you know, you see sometimes you see those buttons like if you could hit one button and you could wipe out something or you could change history forever and there's no going back. It's like God hit the button. I'll pour out the spirit and I'll establish Jesus as king. There's no going back. Once this thing gets hit, it's all going in one direction from here on out. God's going to save the world. God's glory is going to spread across the face of the earth because the spirit of God's going to get poured out and Jesus is going to be established as king. And God went, boop, and he hit the button. Now nothing can be the same. And not only, it's not like it's an option. Nothing can no longer, it can no longer be the same. It has to happen. <clears throat> but I think to get just a couple other things as we think about this too. And this is really important for us to also then think of, okay, that's a great truth, right? I mean, that to me, that was one of the greatest truths to learn in the Bible that got me out of just really poor thinking about like life and where everything's going in history and our effectiveness as Christians in proclaiming the gospel message, right? I mean, if you think the gospel message is five people are going to get saved and the rest of the world's all going to hell, well, that's not very encouraging. But if the message is, you guys got to go out and be my witnesses because God wants this message to go out to the ends of the earth, that all the Gentiles, all the nations would hear this kind of thing. I mean, that's an encouraging message, is it not? I mean, it's the most encouraging message. In fact, I think as Christians, this ought to be the thing that encourages us the absolute most. But you know what? What kind of duty this ought to require of us now? It's not, it's not something to just sit back and enjoy that truth, right? Because... What did all those Old Testament verses read? How is God going to accomplish this thing? Well, yeah, he's going to pour out his spirit. But how, who does he pour out his spirit upon? He has witnesses, people. He pours out his spirit upon people and they go and testify. They go and witness. They go open up their mouths. They go and die for the cause of Christ. They go and live for the cause of Christ. And then as a result of that, people come in. Brethren, this should, this should encourage you. This should make you think, where history going is going and is current and has been going for the last 2,000 years is one of great optimism and one of great encouragement. God has not allowed the world to go to hell in a handbasket and praise the Lord for that. But you know what, brethren? Let us not become a people who just, we become comfortable with that message, kind of like you become comfortable with like a book or a movie that you know the ending to already. Yeah, we already know how it's all going to end. Ah, big whoop, right? No, this should cause us to, to be a, a certain kind of people. 
And right there in Acts chapter 1, that's where it should begin. If we want power for this thing to work, where do we got to go? We got to go in prayer and we need the Spirit. This is not going to be accomplished by clever theology, a bunch of uh, tactics, you know, drawing people into the church. It's got to be accomplished through prayer. It's got to be accomplished through the Spirit of God. This is something that if we want to see happen and is going to happen and we want to be a part of this, brethren, we got to pray for this kind of thing. We got to pray God would give us power to do this kind of thing. And you know what? You know what the church is constantly doing throughout the book of Acts? Praying and what is God doing for them? He's filling them with what? The Spirit. He's constantly filling the church with the Spirit. Why? Because He wants to give them more power for the task. And so we have great encouragement. God did it then. God is not just going to do it for us if we really hope so. Brethren, He will do it for us if we just ask. He will. That's, that, that, that is, Pentecost is not just some random thing that occurred. That's actually, that's how history needs to go in its rejection. We need to ask God for the power of the Spirit, and then God will act mightily on our behalf. He'll pour out His Spirit. He promised to. We just need to ask. And so, brethren, as we, as we think about that, that's where we need to start. And then, like I said, we could go on and on about how this should affect our lives, but what kind of lives are we going to live in light of this truth? What kind of li- lives are we going to live in light of the fact that you, I mean, think about the age in which you live in. I mean, I cut my thumb open the other day and it made me like, you know, it's really silly how I did it. But you know what? As I was getting a shot right there in my thumb and it hurt really bad, you know what I realized? I didn't have to bear the pain of everything. I didn't have to bear the pain of stitches. I didn't have to bear the pain of like biting down on something and just like, hey, you know what? There's no doctor in your village. You're just going to have to wrap it up and suck it up, right? It's like I went down to a clinic and I just got care like that instantly, all for free. Didn't have to pay a dime for it. And you know what it it really reminded me of and made me really thankful for? I'm really grateful I didn't live 500 years ago. And that's not to say anything bad about 500 years ago. Was 500 years ago good? It was, right? Is 500 years later better? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> 500 years later is better. And you know what, brethren? I'm grateful to live where I live now. I'm grateful to have the blessing that I have now. You should be grateful for that too. But you know what? We sit in this age, and you think about that. You sit, brethren, listen. You don't, you're not pre-Christ. The age of darkness. I mean, that's what we heard in Ephesians the other week. We're talking about the great age before Christ came was a great age of darkness. It was not a great age of light. It was a great age of darkness. And you get to live in the age of the Messiah where the light has been shown, shown upon you, and you've believed it. I mean, what kind of person ought that make you to be? Very thankful. And now you got to go tell people, listen, you can, you can come into this age. This age is dawned and it's here and you need to come in, right? And you live in that kind of thing. And you live with the benefits of that kind of thing. You live with all these benefits around you because the age of the Messiah has come in. The great age of the Spirit. So, is there any questions or anything before we, before we close out? Any co- even comments? Any thoughts? Go for it. There's more people out there. Who's got to go out and get them? Us. I mean, yeah, the, 
Yeah, it's. I mean, it seems like it that they often when you see the when you hear about not see. I mean, I guess none of us. I mean, I want to. <laughs> none of us have actually seen revival, but what we've read about in revival is it looks very similar to Acts. I mean, not only are people getting saved, but a lot of crazy things are happening too. People's sin are getting brought out to bear. Uh, there's miraculous things going on. I mean, heck, you got a lot of things going on in revival, but um, in revival and even in just the ordinary day to day, yeah, I mean that is directly tied to it. That's and we and we want to pray and ask for that. And what's really funny though too is as you read Acts, is you get these moments where the gospel hits in a very profound way, like in revival, a lot of people get saved. A lot of people get saved. A lot of people get saved. But you know, also what you you have as well going on in Acts is every everyday ordinary Christians taking the gospel out, sometimes by choice, sometimes like in Acts 8 when we went through James by force. And guess what that results in? The gospel going even further out. I mean, so you just have both tied up in there. So yeah, revival and the ordinary day-to-day, we don't even have to split up the two. Let's just ask for both. Make us faithful in the day-to-day, and Lord, give us revival. You know, well, let's, let's, let's ask for it.